0: Hello Deep State Radio listeners, fall is approaching and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further, with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit the dsrnetwork.com buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's the dsrnetwork buy. Thank you. Nine. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our podcast, even special for the special editions, because we often will do conversations with authors who've written books we think are important. But this is not only an especially important book, but it's an author who's one of our favorites on many venues, from her hosting of the Amicus podcast to her writing in Slate, to all her other writing. Daya Lithwick is great, and she has written a great book called Lady Justice, which we're here to discuss. And this morning I got up and I, I don't know, I was like Twittering as I do. And uh, the first thing I saw was that Oprah has made a list of the books people have got to read this fall. And number one was your book. I assume right now, while we're talking, you're going to try to be engaged. But what you're really thinking about is where am I going to build my beach house?
1: (laughs) No, I'm, in fact, I'm going to start with a polite thank you for your kind words, and then I'm going to pivot to the first print run sold out, which is a lovely problem to have. But given the scarcity and shortages in the publishing industry, mostly my first thought is, holy hell, are people really going to have to wait till the end of October for books? And why are they all shouting at me? So that's what, well, I was you know,
0: I have a book coming out in November that they printed up and I am absolutely certain the print run will not run out and maybe they could just print over those.
1: Oh no, no, no. I think what we should do is double your print run right here and right now. And, uh, Oprah, if you're listening,
0: <laughs> getting Oprah to pick a book, is like, that's kind of a big deal.
1: I have no idea how that happened. Quite honestly, I'm sure it's the um, ninjas at Penguin who are doing my publicity.
0: I mean, do you know Prince Harry and Meghan and stuff like that? Oh Just, my God. are those the circles you travel in?
1: You know me well enough to know <laughs> I've been living in my basement, snuffling with asthma for the last two years. So whatever my circles are, they are largely—and you know this too—my cat who does all my staffing. So no. No Harry, no Megan, but
0: thank you. Congratulations to your cat, who's done a great job of staffing. (laughs) And to you, because this book has gotten spectacular reviews, as it should, it is a great book. And I think I would characterize it as a book that deals with a paradox, and that is the rising influence and critical role played by women lawyers, particularly at a time when we are facing real crisis in in democracy and fundamental rights in America. And even as that is happening, a major effort to constrain and limit the rights of women. And and so there's this fundamental tension. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, that's probably related. That, you know, the the rise of the one is probably triggering the people who want to find ways to constrain it. Do you think there's some cause and effect there.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good insight. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this this book lives on the seam of exactly the problem you've described, which is, you know, the law has been the source of an agent of great freedom and dignity and equality for women not just in America but around the world, and it's also been the agent of their persecution and in some cases uh criminalization and I think, you know, you need look no further than what's going on in Iran to see what happens when you have a regime that really feels that starts with women's hair, but really soon after it's their speech and their assembly and everything else. So I I think that's right. And I think and I know you and I have talked about this uh, around the Dobbs decision, that it's a really fine line between the law being used to protect and effectuate your rights and dignity And the law being used to put you in jail, which is literally post Dobbs, you know, what is happening in some jurisdictions. And I guess the the thesis of the book is that women are really sensitive to that, that women know that when crowds are chanting, lock her up, lock her up, starts with Hillary Clinton, then it's AOC, then it's Christine Blasey Ford. And now it's women in Alabama who are in jail because of fetal endangerment. So I, I think you're right. I think we have to hold that tension of the law being, <laughs> as Homer Simpson famously said of beer, both the cause of and the solution to the problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, Homer Simpson, oddly enough, did not cross my mind as I was reading. But something like that did. And that is that it is the fact that women have historically been excluded, that they have not been. Inside the corrupting back rooms of power that enabled them, in so many ways described in your book, to view the abuses of what is still an old boys' network and put the brakes on it. In other words, the outsider role, which is undeserved and does not reflect well on our society, has helped these women become the advocates that they've been.
1: David, I think that's right. I think we also have to account for the women who are in the back rooms, right? The Sydney Powells and the Amy Coney Barrett's and the Judge Eileen Cannons. I mean, I think I'm always reluctant to essentialize because there's always an example of a woman who's trying to set aside the 2020 election results in a court. But I think that what you're describing, which has kind of been my theory since I first started covering the Supreme Court in 1999 and watching at the time Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, how if there was something I could say about the way they did law that was different from the way the men did law. And the thing that you're describing, I feel absolutely animates, you know, both them as justices. And now I think the same can be said for Justices Sotomayor and Kagan and Justice Jackson. And that is, that I think that if you have lived your life, and I say the same thing as a you know woman who went to law school in the mid-90s, both being inside the system and outside the system, and living in that split screen of being there at the sufferance of the powerful, but also proximate to power, I think you get good at being an insider and an outsider, and I think you get very, very sensitive to the ways in which the law can be turned against you
0: the law and also the way society works right and and so some of the lawyers and I and I've I've done a disservice here by diving right in because we know each other and I should have summarized the structure of the book which is looking at women lawyers who played this kind of cutting edge role at this moment in our society and 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 the origins of that and the context of that but you know, some, some of the pushback they felt has been outside the law, but has led to, you know, manifestations within it. And one of the examples that you give in the book, you're admirably honest in the, 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 how this affected you, was this story of uh, Judge uh, Kozinski. Is that, do I have that right? And a story much like that, that you find in other industries of kind of abuse and, and but also of tolerance of the abuse. And of people standing up to it, maybe you can describe that for people and the role you played. Because I don't want to characterize it.
1: This was, you know, a, a judge who was a formidable mind, a, a brilliant writer. You know, I think a such an important jurisprudential figure. He was the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal appeals court on the West Coast, and it was just kind of an open secret for decades that he showed porn to clerks. He treated female clerks very disrespectfully in sexualized ways. I mean, he was pretty abusive generally to his clerks, but everybody had a story and we all didn't tell it or we whispered it to each other. And I certainly spent years telling young women law students that, yes, it's true. He is a quote unquote feeder judge. If you clerk for him, you get a Pretty good shot at clerking on the Supreme Court the next year. And it's not worth it because it is not a tolerable work environment. And we all did nothing. We just did nothing. And in 2017, a couple of women came forward and very publicly described one, a former clerk, Heidi Bond, Emily Murphy, who clerked for another judge, Leah Littman, now at Michigan. And women came forward and started to finally say, This is what he did. This is what he said. He initially acted as though, you know, he got a lawyer and acted as though these were trivial accusations. And then I think by the time the number went up to 14 or 15 people uh, willing to go on the record, he stepped down, you know, still with his pension intact and without an investigation, the what would have been the investigation of Article three judges just disappeared. And so my role in it was that I was one of the women who and I'm not proud to say I was not the first. I think I was the fourth or the fifth. When he started dismissing the accounts, I wrote about what I had seen and heard. But you're exactly right. I didn't want it to be, you know, it got spun at the time And you know, Dahlia Lithwick, Just Me Too, Judge Kaczynski. The point wasn't to Me Too him and his infractions to the extent that they were directed at me were trivial, but it was that everybody knew. (laughs) Everybody had a story. And I couldn't understand that journalists knew this, law professors knew this, and yet he was invited to event after event after event where another young girl would have, you know, a bad experience. And it just seemed to me that we were all utterly complicit. And the real thing I wanted to think about was, what does it mean that instead of actual processes and investigations and systems, we have this thing where a handful of victims kind of throw themselves on the you know twitter fire and hope that something is done but that we don't do big systemic reforms and that by the way all of the people who will send you an email saying that was great good for you you know he's resigned let me tell you my seven stories about him don't understand that they too are part of the problem
0: that is very very well put and i think carries over into many other Professions. My wife is an opera singer, and you know you've read about Placido Domingo and the whole, you know, the way that world works. People in show business, people in other media, and other kinds of areas. One of the other things that struck me in reading the book was how many of the women who were champions in different kinds of causes, who were effective in certain kinds of causes, who did not just lead their lives being other because of their gender, but they had there was something else. Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson are people of color. Justice Kagan, Justice Ginsburg were Jewish. You talk about uh, lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, who uh, was the lawyer in, around the Charlottesville thing, who was openly gay and, and as well as Jewish. And so, you know, and so they've, they've experienced this and been buffeted in a variety of, of ways. And there, now, of course, there are people in your book who are heroes of these stories. Who are Sally Yates and others who are not. But I was just wondering, to what extent do you think being buffeted by these other kinds of social issues were, were factors in their development?
1: For sure they are. I would say almost the same thing I just said about Beer and Homer Simpson, which is, I think, for people like, you know, Vanita Gupta, who's now the number three in the Merrick Garland Justice Department who is very, very mindful throughout her chapter of the fact that her parents come from India and what that involves and the racism directed at her growing up, that I I think in a strange way, a lot of these people are uniquely beholden to and aware of the American project of taking immigrants. You know, Bridget Amiri, whose uh, father comes from Iran, is at pains to say, you know, this country let us in and like I got to law school and I'm at the ACLU and I'm litigating cases they are aware that they are the American dream. But you're exactly right. I think that that susceptibility to racism or to homophobia makes them extra vulnerable. And so I think it's that same thing where the law is both the solution in their eyes, it it, it vaulted them into an echelon that they might not have achieved wherever they originally came from. But at the same time, the law is the problem, (laughs) because when it is directed against, you know, and this is I think why Vanita was so central, you know, when, when family separations were happening or, um, you know, some of, of the women in the book were such important fighters for uh, migrant teens on the border, like Bridget Amiri, uh, who couldn't get an abortion. I think you're right. I think that they sense that vulnerability and the ways in which the protections of the law that are purportedly for everyone are withheld from the most vulnerable. And they really sense that in their bones. Yeah,
0: you know, it's interesting, the book that I've just written, which I was mentioning earlier, American Resistance, is about how career government professionals and people who've spent their lives working in and out of government kind of played a critical role, a role akin to the one you're describing, in pushing back on the Trump administration, because they honored their oath to the Constitution as opposed to loyalty to a man or a party. And the number of them who were women. Was disproportionately high given the number of women who were in these positions. And we have, you know, we, we know the stories, whether it's Masha Ivanovich or Fiona Hill or, or people on the outside, like you talk about in your book, who stood up to it. And, and also I think one of the things that struck me is some of the people that you think of as insiders, Secretary Nielsen, for example. Was so regularly marginalized by Trump. Whatever you may think of her, the totality of her service, she actively pushed back on a lot of things because she was like, you know, this he this guy was you know would call her honey, you know, in the meetings, and and it just it happened throughout. And it's also interesting. And I am no Betsy DeVos fan or Elaine Chao fan, but. When January 6th happened, they were the first ones out the door. You know, they were they were like not wanting to stand up for this this kind of a guy. So I think in the context of the Trump administration, this was exacerbated by the toxicity of the atmosphere for women.
1: I think that's right. And I don't think you could serve under Donald Trump for more than 10 minutes without being subject to some version of that. You know, you were either invisible and ugly or he was just treating you as though, you know, you were trying out for the apprentice. And I think that everybody got exposed to that. I, I don't have a great theory. I, I noticed the same thing, you know, when, when all those lawyers showed up at the airport, just as volunteers in the first hours of the travel ban, disproportionately women lawyers showed up. So I think that you're, you're definitely describing something that I see as a through line. And the best theory of the case I have, and I don't know if it's good is that I think women are much, much closer to feeling that visceral violence in their skin. You know, I think that the reason January 6th or Charlottesville got such a pushback from even women inside the administration is because there is such a muscle memory of walking through the parking lot with the keys in your hands, thinking you might have to defend yourself. And again, I'm loath to essentialize. I don't think that's true of all women. It's certainly true of many men. But I do think that once you know that the seam between you and just overt violence and power is so, so, so fragile. I think that it's very, very unsurprising that it's women who say, you know what, if you guys are trashing the Capitol and, you know, threatening to to hang people, I'm out. Because I think that it's not just the handmaid's tale. This is history. It always turns on women
0: first. Yeah. And I and I, you know, I, I think it's important. But as as you've done already twice in the podcast, we don't generalize. Ashley Babbitt was a woman, Sidney Powell and Amy Coney Barrett. And they're, you know, they're they're women who've taken a different course. And to the degree to which the, their role as a woman colored the choices they've made, I think is an interesting question. But you know, I, if you sort of pull the camera back a little bit, one of the things that I wondered a little bit about as I thought of this is, you know, you watch. The scenes, or you know, the stories of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at Harvard, and there are no women in the class. And, you know, they're getting questions like, Well, why would you do this rather than being a wife and a mother and and so forth? And that that, you know, I mean, I know people from that class who are still around. That, you know, they're that's fairly recent behavior. But in recent years, if I'm not mistaken, something approaching equal numbers or majority of people becoming lawyers are women. How do you think that affects this whole formula?
1: Not just that, but, you know, I'm 20, what, five, seven years out of law school. And that was the case when I was in law school. So it's not even a new phenomenon that we have parity in the entering class, but we don't have parity, you know, at the tops of Fortune 500 companies. We don't have parity on the courts. We don't have parity in, you know, law firms and, and the sort of leadership of law firms. And I think the answer to some of that is that the law is in a lot of ways uniquely unwilling to change itself so that women can be at the highest levels, you know, and, and you and I could probably between us name a hundred young women who left their firm for a couple of years to have kids and then got sent back to some pink ghetto where they do, you know, I, I mean, it's endemic, not just uh, in the profession, but I think in law school as well and, you know, in in the legal academy. So I think that this is just a profession that has been very slow to change in ways that understand the realities, live realities of women's lives. But but that said, I think that in a weird way, the thing that you just described, which is that lulling sense that like, it must be great because if half the class is women and they're talking in class, there must be no problem, is part of what set us back, right? Because we have this illusion that everything's fine and that the Supreme Court would never overturn Roe. And Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh promised us in their confirmation hearings that they love and support women. So I think the thing that is sort of shot through what you're saying is that I think there's a little bit of a sleep at the switch quality that was why Dobbs was such a shocker That how is it even possible that we thought we'd made such progress? We thought we were just within spinning difference, distance of of real equality. And it turns out, holy hell, like in the span of a couple of years, we've gone back centuries. And I think that that quality of being really sanguine, that like everything is immutable and it's going to be forever and equality is here to stay. And wow, that shifted on a dime is one of the paradoxes that I'm playing with in this book.
0: And, you know, you mentioned Dobbs, and as we sort of come to the end of the interview, I could go on and on for hours. I really enjoy the conversation. But as we as we approach the end, Dobbs is this, as you say, a shocker, right? It's like, oh, my God, look at all the progress. Things are going to get worse. And in some respects, we may see Dobbs as an awakening moment where American women see what's happened, see what's happened to the court, and they go to the polls. They're the difference this November. Democracy is saved. Somehow we figure out a solution for the imbalances in the courts. And and women will lead that charge. And your next book will be great, cheerful. But, you know, when I talk to people in the court, near the court system, lawyers and others who are active in these things, you know, what they tell me is the next 20 years are going to be bad because of this court. And the next three to four years are going to be shocking repetitions of Dobbs. And if you think Dobbs constrains women's choices, wait till contraception is banned, or states are given the ability to ban contraception, or wait till marriage choices changed, and, and that they believe that's coming. And so it seems like, you know, we face this great national choice around the issues that are core to your book.
1: I don't disagree with any of that. I think that it is a choice to say we are now just in thrall to the court in much the same way that Iran is just in thrall to clerics, right? There are structural changes that can be done. And people, smart, good people, and you know them better than I do, are working on the electoral college reform, on Senate reform, on gerrymandering, on every piece of this, right? And so I think the idea that this is just an unshakable juggernaut, that we have to just let the court dump independent state legislature theory on our heads and throw the 2024 election into turmoil, because we are powerless, is part of that asleepness that you're describing. And what's funny, and I guess you know I can end on this, but like good people are doing this work every day. It's not as though we have to invent structural court reform, right? There are groups that are doing this, that are talking about term limits or adding seats or not letting the court overturn voting rights legislation. All of that stuff is is there. So I think that to say that we have no power over this is a choice to have no power. And I think what I want to sort of end up with is that every single one of the women that I profile in this book was also in a position where they could have just said, we're powerless. We are just enthralled to an administration or to a court that has just by fiat taken away our liberties. And none of them did. And I just think democracy work is boring. Gerrymandering reform is boring. The Electoral Count Act, I can't even say those words without falling asleep. Like this is not the stuff of like Netflix documentaries, but it's doable and good people are doing it. And I want us all, before we just say, that the court is coming for our contraception to do what the women in Kansas did this summer, what the women in Michigan did this summer, and say, you know what, democracy is the thing that could actually fix this. And I guess I better sign up because I just don't agree with the proposition that this is the same as Iran.
0: It's true. But the women in Iran are also an inspiration in all of this.
1: By all means, and I don't in any way mean to impugn them. But I just think that We are talking about this as though it's a purely political problem. And we have levers of the law that are not available to them. And I think we should be making use of them.
0: You know, I'm of the view, and I don't want to overstate it, that the single greatest crime in the history of history is the subordination of women to men and all the consequences of that core injustice, the original sin of injustice in our society, if you will. And I think when I was a kid, which was a little before you were a kid, but when I was a kid, and my mother and all of her friends were working, I thought, this is gonna change. The ERA was gonna happen. I thought thought this was all gonna change. And I'm shocked to find myself 50 years later With that not being the case, with the choices, with these issues being unresolved, I think because the issue is so essential to the life of everybody, as Dobbs has driven home, that your book is essential. I think people need to go out and get Lady Justice and read it, give it to their friends and their family for Christmas or Hanukkah or whichever holiday you wish to celebrate with a book, because we are at an inflection point. We're at a fork in the road, and either we will do what you just said, or we will lose the opportunity to do so. And that's why a book like this, that's full of heroines and substance, can be not just a a rallying cry, but can actually suggest to people constructive paths. Congratulations, Daya, on this great book. It would be a great book, even if Oprah didn't think it was the best <laughs> of all the books of the fall. But uh, Oprah thought that too. So good on her. She's absolutely right. And uh, I hope that they print those copies that, you know, people want to buy so they, they can get them. But presumably in the interim, they could get an audio book, right? Or they could get an ebook. It's 2022 after all. So that shouldn't, that shouldn't stop them. And uh, I hope they will do it. And I hope that it will do uh, splendidly well. And that we'll have you back sometime soon to talk about all of these things again, as we periodically do.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for the, that is this ridiculously high praise, but I will take it to the bank. And thank you for all the work you're doing, because I know you've been work, working really to surface these like technical arcane legal stuff <laughs> for as long as certainly you and I have been talking and thank you for it. I think it's really essential.
0: Well, you're very kind to say so. So congratulations on the book. Uh, Thanks to you, Dahlia. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll be back again, oh, tomorrow with another discussion on on something else of consequence. Hope you will buy the book between now and then. Bye-bye, everybody.